anybody on here from Queen Jack that? <laughs> Good to see all of you here this morning on this Lord's Day when we celebrate our liberty, not only as citizens of an earthly kingdom, but as citizens also of the kingdom of God. On September 15th of 1995, a Canadian-born pastor named Jim Bradford became a United States citizen. He says, in the process of becoming an American citizen, I learned that since the mid-1970s, Canada has recognized the citizenship of any Canadian who has taken out citizenship in another country. I am technically the citizen of two countries, the United States and Canada. It's called dual citizenship. And like Pastor Bradford, we who are Christians also have a kind of dual citizenship. We're citizens of an earthly kingdom, this country whose independence we celebrate on Tuesday, and we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, a kingdom to which we owe an even greater allegiance. Few passages in the Bible make that point more clearly than the one we're going to look at this morning. It's found in Matthew chapter 22, the Gospel of Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22. An appropriate text, I think, as we prepare to celebrate our national independence. So I invite you, if you're able, to stand with me as I read this passage for us, and we look at it more carefully today. <clears throat> the Bible says... Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap Jesus in His words. They sent their disciples to Him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, We know you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he asked them, Whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Thank you. Please be seated. According to an old saying, politics makes strange bedfellows. And that saying refers to a situation when groups or individuals who are ideologically opposed to one another unite in order to oppose a common foe or enemy or to support a common cause if they find one. And Jesus seems to have provoked a similar kind of response among His opponents and antagonists in the Scripture. Down in verse 23 in the passage following what we just read, it was the Sadducees who came to try to trip Him up with a question about marriage. In our text, it is the Pharisees and the Herodians who were trying to trip him up. Now, 
their issue was about paying taxes to the government. And it's likely that the Pharisees and the Herodians were on different sides of that question. The Pharisees would have opposed that tax because they saw it as a mark of slavery to those heathen Romans. The Herodians, on the other hand, we don't know a lot about, but they may well have supported the tax because they were probably connected to the Herods, from which they get their name, the Herodians. And the Herods were permitted governing authority in Palestine, which would suggest a cozy relationship between the Herods and the empire. But one thing is sure, neither of those groups had any love for Jesus. So they conspired together to try to trip Him up. According to John Broadus in his classic commentary on Matthew, this took place on Tuesday of Holy Week, before Jesus was arrested and crucified at the end of the week. And they came to Jesus with a question. Now, I don't know if you noticed it as we read, but the Pharisees didn't come themselves. They sent their disciples, didn't they? They seemed to have been rather cowardly. They didn't want to come to Jesus face to face. Perhaps they thought that Jesus, in His wisdom, in His response, might embarrass them. So they sent their disciples as their emissaries. Even so, they spoke for the Pharisees, and the group begins in verse 16 to flatter Jesus, if you noticed. They call Him teacher. They say, we know you're a man of integrity. You teach the way of God in accordance with the truth, not swayed by men. You don't pay attention to who they are. These flowery and flattering words that they did not believe one whit. And yet those words were absolutely the truth. Everything they were saying about Jesus was true. But they didn't believe it. They resisted it. So why would they say these things? Well, it was to give the appearance of respect before the people. Because Jesus had some fans. He had some followers among the people. They listened to Him. They recognized the wisdom of His words. And they didn't want to sour their own relationship with the people by being disrespectful toward Jesus, even though there really was no respect there. And the question they ask is a yes or no question, but it's not really a yes or no question, is it? It's one without an answer. It's like the, the old question, have you stopped beating your wife yet? Well, no. Yes. No, wait, I don't beat my wife. What are you talking about? It's not a simple yes or no kind of thing. And so that's why this question is a trap. They're trying to trap Jesus. Now the tax they're talking about was a poll tax. That is, it was a tax on people rather than property. And everyone was required to pay it. So it was universally disliked. No one wanted to pay taxes. And the Jews, like the Pharisees, would have seen it as an intrusion, a mark of obeisance to the heathens, the Romans who occupied their land. If Jesus supported the tax, He would have been seen as a traitor to His people. On the other hand, if He said taxes should not be paid to Rome, then He would have been seen as a traitor and a rebel against the empire, against the government. 
And in fact, not three days later, that very accusation was made against Jesus. In spite of what He said to them in this passage, Luke tells us that Jesus' accusers were saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ a king. Jesus didn't oppose paying taxes to Caesar, but they accuse Him of it anyway. So obviously there is no right answer for Jesus. And Jesus does not enter into a debate with them either. There's an important lesson for us in that. Jesus doesn't let Himself get pulled into petty squabbles that we are so fond of, it seems particularly in our government. Politics is becoming more and more petty by the day, isn't it? Jesus doesn't get Himself engaged in that. He keeps His eye on the ball. He keeps His focus on things that are of true value and true significance and eternal consequence, and that is namely the kingdom of God. Jesus stays focused on that. And we need to learn to do the same thing not just in our engagement in civic responsibilities, but also within the body of Christ, the church. We need to keep our eye focused on the kingdom of God because it's too easy to get distracted by petty, insignificant things. I had a friend in Texas who was a deacon at a large, influential, good, affluent Baptist church in an affluent neighborhood of Dallas. And that church is a wonderful church. They do a lot of good things. But he was lamenting the fact that in a recent deacons meeting they had wasted a whole hour talking about pulpit furniture. They had taken their eye off the ball. So much of the stuff that we get worked up over is ultimately insignificant. The paint, the furnishings, the this, the that, the whatever it may be. Jesus didn't fall into that. We need to be like Him and keep our eye on the ball. And all of that other stuff will be, grow to mean less to us as we do. Back to the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? It was an insincere question. They didn't really want an answer. They weren't seeking godly wisdom for a pressing question they had. They didn't want an answer that they could obey or that they could follow. And Jesus knew it. In verse 18, He called them hypocrites. That word means play actor. They were play acting. They pretended to be interested in an answer to the question, but all they were really interested in was tripping up Jesus. And He was wise enough to know it. Nevertheless, in one of the most brilliant responses to a trick question in all of recorded history, Jesus gave them an honest answer. The same answer, I think, that He would have given them even if the question had not been a trick. And what was the answer? Well, Jesus asked for a coin, and they brought Him, it says, a denarius, the silver coin equivalent to one day's wage. Now they didn't simply fish one out of their pockets and hand it to Him because that coin had an image on it. 
And they were in the temple courts, in God's house. And the Jews were particularly sensitive to anything there that might have been viewed as idolatrous. And so Jesus asked them for the coin. They had to bring Him one. And when they did, He asked them whose image and inscription were on the coin. Whose image does it bear? And Jesus, uh, they, they responded, of course, Caesar. That's Caesar's image. And Jesus said, Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. Brilliant, isn't it? Simple, eloquent, and yet so wise. It put his, his antagonists, it shut them up, it closed their mouths. They didn't know what to say to that. They hadn't accomplished their objective after all. Jesus said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but give to God what belongs to God. What a concept. Separation of church and state, if you will. It's very apparent in this passage, I think. And yet we have such a hard time doing it. It ought to be simple. Baptists as a group have long supported separation of church and state. We did it much more so when we were a persecuted minority than we do these days when we have a little bit of clout. But we've always supported it. In fact, the first Baptist church on American soil was established by Roger Williams, who had left the Massachusetts Bay Colony because he was being persecuted by the Puritans there. And he went and bought some land from the Indians and established the city of Providence, which later became the capital of Rhode Island, and founded the first Baptist church on American soil because he was being persecuted by the Christians back at the Massachusetts Bay Colony. We like to think of the, the colonists as coming from England for religious liberty. Well, they did, but only for themselves. And so the Massachusetts Bay Colony persecuted other believers. They, they hanged four uh, Quakers. You were in danger for your life if you disagreed with the church that was the state. The uh, Church of England became the official state church of the Virginia Colony. And they felt like they had the authority to appoint pastors and license pastors. And they would fine or imprison those who who taught anything otherwise. It was rather an oppressive situation. But separation of church and state is intended to preserve freedom of religion. It protects religion from the tyranny of the state. For example, in communist China, where the government tyrannizes the church and harasses the church. But on the other hand, it protects the state from the tyranny of the church. Like Afghanistan, where the Taliban tyrannizes the state, or, or Iraq, Iran, I mean. Or these early colonies in the United States, what became the United States. There was religious intolerance. The First Amendment to the Constitution is about religious liberty. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That comes first. 
before freedom of speech, before freedom of assembly, before freedom of the press. You see, our forefathers did not have an objective to establish a Christian nation. They were Christians out to establish a free nation. That was their genius. And as a country, the United States has accomplished that more admirably than any nation in history, I think. But we still struggle with it. We still have those who think this ought to be a, a, a Christian uh, by law, that we need to take back our government, take back these things that we somehow feel have been taken from us. But that's not what God desires at all. We need to establish freedom of religion, not just tolerance of religion. The founding fathers recognized the difference. They knew that tolerance was not the same as freedom of religion, and so they established it. In fact, Thomas Jefferson wrote to the Danbury Baptist Association in Connecticut, quoted those first two clauses of the First Amendment, and said this establishes a wall of separation between church and state. It was ingenious, and it has worked for us, and we need to remember that. Believe me, you do not want a Christian nation because there are all different kinds of Christians, just the way they were in the colonial days. The Puritans over here, the Congregationalists over here, this new group called Baptists over here, the Puritans, the, the Pilgrims and so on and so forth, and they persecuted one another. The same thing would happen today. We've got Baptists, we've got Methodists, we've got Catholics, we've got Protestants, we've got uh, Pentecostals, we've got every kind of stripe and flavor of Christian you can imagine because we have religious freedom. But if you establish that, marry that to the state and put it in power, you wouldn't be happy for long, I assure you. In fact, you would see a great revival among the politicians of this land. <laughs> Whichever Christian group ascended to the fore, they would be a part of that just as quickly as you could say uh, whatever you want to say. <laughs> they would be there. They would be adhering to that because what they're interested in is power. And God has all the power. Let's keep these things separate from one another so that we can have freedom of conscience. Baptists have long championed that, and we have forgotten our history, even our national history. Let's look at what Jesus says. There are lessons here in these words of His. First, we learn that we do owe a debt to our government. We owe a debt to them. These Pharisees in this text may have thought they shouldn't pay taxes, but the very fact that they used Roman coinage demonstrated that they benefited from the government. And they and we enjoy certain civic benefits that the government is supposed to provide, currency being one of them, roads, transportation, education, a justice system, national security, on and on we could go. So Jesus tells us to pay what we owe. The Bible says it again in Romans chapter 13 and does so even more explicitly. So those who cheat on their taxes are disobeying God, aren't they? 
according to Scripture. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And some things do. But at the same time, there are limitations to the things that are Caesar's. We should not render to Caesar the things that are God's. That can take a lot of different forms. For example, we as individual Christians ought to be good citizens. We have a right and a responsibility to be active in the political arena, attempting to uphold justice and righteousness in the public square. But we should never marry the church to any political agenda or political party. Some Christians are absolutely convinced that God is a Republican. And others are absolutely convinced that God is a Democrat. And woe be to anyone who doesn't see it the way they do. If you don't see it the same way, then you aren't a good Christian. Maybe not even a Christian at all. By the way, in case you're wondering, I am a Republicrat. <laughs> I vote my conscience. And you should too. Whenever we marry the church to some political agenda, we run the risk of demeaning God, as well as the greater cause of the kingdom of God. When we drag God too quickly into petty political squabbles, we violate the third commandment, which says you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses His name. We should be concerned any time the church gets too cozy with the state. I had a, a, a religious liberty proponent back where I used to live who used to say, with the shekels come the shackles. The more you accept from the government, the more shackled you become by it. We need to maintain our freedom, our liberty, both in the public square and in the church. Remember, God changes the world by changing hearts, not by changing governments. We should never give to Caesar an allegiance that belongs only to God. And one other thing, this is not a rigid compartmentalization of life either. These things are still related in a way. No one can serve two masters, Jesus said. One is always over all. And believe me, it's supposed to be God. Amen. Too many have forgotten that. When faced with the choice of doing the, the thing that Jesus teaches us or doing what is politically expedient, too many sacrifice God for their politics. We should never do that. God is our ultimate authority. Even in serving Caesar, we must do so in a way that honors God what He teaches us in His Word. You can stand for certain things, for, for certain uh, principles, for certain laws, for certain changes, for certain uh, agendas, but do so as a Christian in the Spirit of Christ, recognizing that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us has all the answers. Don't stop listening as you serve Caesar, as you serve in the public square, as you give Caesar what belongs to him, do so in the spirit of Christ. That's where so many people who are 
pursuing the right objectives get off track by doing it in a spirit of enmity and hatred and anger and fury. That is not God's way. So you might ask, what do we owe to God? Well, Jesus answered His questioners in a very interesting way with regard to that. He held up this coin and said, whose image is on this coin? And they said, it's Caesar's image. Then give it to Caesar, Jesus said. It has Caesar's image on it, give it to him, it belongs to him. The Bible says that you and I were created in the image of God. As human beings, we bear God's image. So if the coin minted in Caesar's image belongs to Caesar, then to whom do we who are minted in God's image belong? It's God. <laughs> in case you were wondering. We bear His image. We belong to Him. God wants us. That's what God wants. He's interested in having us, our hearts, our affection, our devotion. We are His. We were planned for His pleasure, as the Purpose Driven Life book used to say. And not only were we created in His image, when we distorted that image with our sin, God redeemed us, meaning He bought us back. He paid a price for us, a high price, the price of the blood of His only Son, Jesus, on the cross. We belong to Him. The Bible says we have been bought with a price. So when Jesus says, give to God the things that are God's, He means for us to give our whole selves to God, our complete devotion, heart, soul, mind, and strength, first and foremost, above all other priorities. We belong to Him. How do we do that? Well, first, of course, is by receiving Christ, God's provision for our sin and our salvation. That's number one. But then we do it by living for Him, both privately and publicly, both in the church and in the community, both in our social circles and in political circles. We live for Him by producing the fruit of His kingdom, by serving among His people, the church, by giving a tenth or more of our income to His work in demonstration that we love Him more than we love what comes from His hand, His blessing. So I would wrap up by saying, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and so identify yourself as a good citizen. And give to God the things that are God's, and so identify yourself as a good Christian. May we learn this lesson from our Lord Jesus today. And may we keep our eyes on the ball on the things that will ultimately count and ultimately matter, than things that are ultimately going to, to collapse into dust, then God will be pleased. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for our liberty, our freedom. Not just the freedom that we enjoy as citizens of this great country, because of the sacrifices of many that have gone before us to preserve that freedom, to establish it, even 
taking up unpopular positions against those in power in order to establish religious liberty that we still enjoy. But we thank you, God, most of all for the liberty that we have from our bondage to sin through Jesus Christ. We celebrate the independence and the liberty of our nation this week, but I pray that we celebrate every week and every day the freedom that is ours in Jesus. Ultimate freedom, true freedom. The human conscience cannot be enslaved by the tyranny of, of governments or churches. We have freedom of conscience also as a, as a distinctive of our faith tradition as Baptists. And I pray, God, that we might remember our history, that we might remember what we have been taught, the lessons of the past, so that we won't make them again. Preserve our liberty and our freedom, we pray, O oh God. And God bless the United States of America. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.